From time to time, it is my privilege to preach the Word of God from this pulpit. Uh, the last time I preached, I finished a series in Second Timothy, and in wondering, well, what I would, what would I do the next times that I'm preaching? I was just really drawn to the Gospel of Matthew. I love the Gospels. I hope you do. Uh, some time ago, I began a Bible reading program every day that takes me in several different books of the Bible on, on the same day. And I have thoroughly been blessed by at least one of those chapters every day is from the Gospels, starting with Matthew. And when I finish Matthew, then do the next chapter in Luke, Mark, and then through to Luke and to John. And I think that is... Uh, a real blessing from God in, in a number of ways, one of which you might remember that in Romans chapter 12, uh, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews uh, exhorts us in our Christian life that it's like running a race. And when you're running a race, it is very important that you keep your eye on the goal. And in running our Christian life as a race, he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And I have seen that reading the Gospels from the Gospels every day just helps me to keep my eyes on Christ. And I would encourage you in, in your reading to be constantly reading in the Gospels, not neglecting the rest of the Bible, but just at least one chapter a day uh, in the Gospels. But I am excited to begin this series in the Gospel of Matthew, and this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Many people will look at this and say, well, that's a genealogy. Uh, we don't need to spend much time in that. In fact, um, even, even people that share the Word of God uh, sometimes have a tendency to back off from the genealogy. R.C. Sproul, a wonderful uh, teacher of, the, of God's Word who's now with the Lord, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, talks about a missionary that he knew who was with Wycliffe Bible translators, translating God's Word. And he, this missionary was in a particular area with a tribal group of people that had never heard the gospel, didn't know about Jesus, and they didn't have their language written down. So the missionary had to learn the language and began to translate. Well, the missionary is so excited to get part of the word to them. And the missionary had started with Matthew that the missionary decided, you know, I, I think I'll skip the genealogy. And we'll just get to the heart of the matter, which is the story of Jesus Christ. And so skip the genealogy. And then that uh, uh, gospel of Matthew without the genealogy was printed and distributed to the people who had been taught to read. And they kind of said, oh, oh that, that's nice, and so on. But later, he translated the genealogy, gave it to them, to the chief of this group first, and the chief got excited. He said, oh, this Jesus is a real person. When you talked about him, I thought he was a myth. But now I see he's got a family. He comes from a family tree. He is a person. Yes, let's learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. So just a reminder that uh, there are a lot of purposes 
for the genealogy, and they are uh, very important. Now, the Gospels give us four portraits of Christ. Um, They're not quite biographies. They're different than a biography, so let's call them a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the question comes, why do we need four? And the reason is that there are four different emphases on who Christ is that comes with each of the Gospels. For instance, uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that Jesus is presented as the king. It's very important that we realize that Jesus is the king, both with his connection with Israel, as well as the fact that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And by the way, in Zechariah 9.9, a prophecy in the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah told Israel, Behold, your king is coming to you. And Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is the king. And then Jesus is also a servant. Uh, In Mark 10.45, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So there is an emphasis on a servant. Well, that's what Mark's gospel does, emphasizes the servant. You don't have the long sermons in Mark. Uh, you have, there, there's an interesting key word in Mark, which is immediately or quickly and, and numerous times in there. With the servant, you want, hey, there's much to do. Get going. Go do this. And Jesus is pictured as the servant in Mark. But Jesus is also a man, the perfect man. And so the Gospel of Luke emphasizes that Jesus is a man. And by the way, back to Mark with the idea of him being a servant, Isaiah 52 verse 13 uh, is a prophecy of Jesus that emphasized that. Behold my servant. So you have behold my king and then you have behold my servant. And that's in Isaiah 52, 13. And it happens to be the passage about the suffering servant, which certainly does fit the Lord Jesus Christ. So behold my servant, the gospel of Mark emphasizes that. The gospel of Luke, as I said, emphasizes Jesus the man. And Zechariah six twelve, a prophecy. Behold a man whose name is the branch that is a pro- pro- prophecy in the Old Testament. They termed the branch. The Jewish people would have identified that. It's, it's connected in the book of Isaiah. And it is a prophecy of Jesus, that Jesus will come from the family of David. So David is like a great tree. And out of the stump of David, there comes a branch, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the man, the branch. So that's emphasized in the Gospel of Luke. So we have king, servant, man. What else is there? Well, he's God. Certainly he's God in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but there is an emphasis in that in the Gospel of John and Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Another prophecy of the Messiah says, and his uh, name will be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God. When you are witnessing to Jewish friends, sometimes they they may raise up an argument. There's nowhere in the scripture 
that says the Messiah will be God. Take them to Isaiah 9.6. And that's not the only passage, but that the mighty God. And that is the emphasis in the Gospel of John. So we need all four to give us the picture of who Jesus is, the Messiah. Well, Matthew shows us, as I said, that Jesus is the king, a king that was promised to Israel to come through King David's line. And we'll be seeing that as we go through the genealogy. The gospel is written by Matthew. He has another name, Levi, sometimes called that in the gospels, but more often Matthew. Interesting thing about Matthew is he was a tax collector. He was a tax collector for the Roman government. And the Roman government had conquered the land of Israel and they, they kept their thumb on the Jewish people. Part of that included raising exorbitant taxes. And so a Jewish tax collector was hated by his fellow Jews. He was considered a traitor because he's gone and worked for the Romans and then considered despicable because of of this heavy tax burden on his fellow Jews. And so they were hated, they were spit at, and yet Jesus called Matthew, uh, the tax collector, hated among his fellow Jews to be one of his disciples. It's interesting that in, in Matthew's gospel, that he, uh, when he comes to give the list of the disciples after Jesus appointed them, Matthew is the only one of the Gospels who, in that list, identifies and Matthew, the tax collector. Luke didn't do it. He wrote a list. But, you know, the others, they just thought, oh, we don't want to emphasize that part about Matthew. But Matthew emphasized it because he was overwhelmed at the grace of God towards him, a sinner, including this sinful tax collector. Well, Matthew is presenting Jesus as the king. So the first issue to be settled when someone claims to be a king is, do they have a right to the throne? Probably everyone here has known at some time in your life someone who is a citizen of Great Britain. And so this person that you've known who is from Great Britain What if they all of a sudden declared, I'm the next king of of England? And you would immediately say, but what is your right to the throne? What is your genealogy? Now, we have just happened to have had a week ago the coronation of the new king of England. There hasn't been a coronation in 70 years of a monarch of, of England. And Charles, what's his right to the throne? His mother was the queen, his grandfather was the king, his great-grandfather was the king, and so it goes. And he was the oldest child and the oldest son of his mother, the queen. He is the one person alive today who was qualified to be the king of England. And it's because of where he is in the line of kings and queens of England. And so we have a genealogy here. Matthew wants us to know Jesus is qualified to be the king, and he's going to be showing that to us. Also, it's interesting that 
Matthew included in his book, in chapter 13, we won't turn there, but in chapter 13, verses 53 through 57, when, when Jesus is visiting his hometown of Nazareth, his contemporaries in Nazareth said, in effect, oh, Jesus is insignificant. And we won't take him seriously. And Matthew shows in chapter 1, yes, we will take him seriously. We had better take him seriously. He is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the son of God. He is the one who has been sent by God for us. And so he's telling his Jewish audience. He wrote this with a Jewish audience in mind. You better be serious about Jesus, your king. But, of course, all scripture is inspired of God for all people. Uh, and, and so we need to take Jesus seriously as well. Well, in honor of God's word, let's stand together and follow along as I read Matthew chapter 1. Not the whole chapter right now but verses 1 to 6, and then verses 16 and 17. Matthew 1, 1 to 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. Now go down to verses 16 through 17, many generations later. Verse 16, and Jacob, this is not Jacob of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a much later Jacob, the father of Joseph. And that's not the Joseph who was the, had the coat of many colors and so on. So this is Joseph, the husband of Mary, as it says. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word. You may be seated. This section uh, divides very easily because of this idea of 14 generations. And we'll talk about that later, uh, what the idea, what's special about the 14. But it's three groups of 14 generations. So first of all, we have the beginning of the story of Jesus Christ in verse 1. And then we'll get into those uh, three groups. And this Verse 1, by the way, is Matthew's title for the book. Look at it as the title for the book. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, the word genealogy there refers to more than verses 2 through 17. It's used in the sense of the history 
of Jesus. For instance, if you showed me your family tree and you're talking about that, you say, here's the history of my family. It's not just a list of names, but it's the history of my family. And that's what he's saying here. The book of the history of Jesus Christ. This is the story of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is from a, is, is a Greek form of a Hebrew name, which is in the Older Testament. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua, Y-E-S-H-U-A, although we usually translate it in English as Joshua. And it means the Lord is salvation. And we're going to see in verse 21 that this was not Joseph, Joseph and Mary's idea to name him Jesus. God told them, told Joseph, we'll see this morning, next week we'll see, told, told Mary, name him, Joseph, or name him Jesus for he will save his people uh, from their sins. And so his name is Jesus, but then it says Christ. Christ is not his last name, like we have our first name and then followed by our second name, but it's his title. It's, it's a, a translation of the Hebrew word for anointed one. And in Hebrew, the, the Hebrew word anointed one sounds, comes out kind of as we have kind of evolved that word to Messiah. It's Mashiach in Hebrew. And we have, in English, kind of anglicized it to Messiah. And the Greek translation of anointed one is Christ. And so this is saying he is Jesus, the one who's promised to come and take, pay for his people's sins, who is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then... He connects us, Matthew connects us with two of God's great covenants in the Old Testament. God made a covenant with Abraham, very key thing in the Older Testament. And he made a covenant with David, same thing. And he is saying Messiah is connected to those two covenants and all those promises that God made uh, through those covenants. And so uh, he introduces us first to his being the son of David. Now, in Matthew's day, the Jews used the term son of David as a title of anyone who was a descendant of David, but more uniquely, they would use it as a title of the Messiah. And they would speak about the coming son of David, the Messiah, (coughs) who the Lord is going to send uh, from us. And the Messiah is going to come through this kingly line of David through Solomon. Now, Matthew is going to show us that. But there is one complication with being a descendant of David through Solomon if you want to be king. And we're going to see that complication when we get there. And we're going to find out Jesus is the only one who can be king because of that complication. But we'll get there. But this also, the fact he's the son of David, reminds us that he is a king, but not just a king. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. A title that is given to him in the book of Revelation 
in chapter 19, verse 16. So not a king, but the king of all the kings and the Lord of all the Lord. So he's a son of David. He's also a son of Abraham. He's a Jew. You would think that Abraham would be mentioned first, because after all, without Abraham, you don't have David. And it would be the logical thing, except that Matthew is emphasizing to us that he's the king. And so in emphasizing that, he starts with the son of David. Well, then we come in verse 2, in verses 2 through the first part of verse 6, to number 2 in the outline, Jesus' genealogy from Abraham to David. And so we begin in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now, if you uh, grew up on the King James, uh, you think of the word begat, because in all these genealogies it it would be, and Abraham begat Isaac, and so on. Uh, ESV translates it, uh, was the father Probably an even better way to put it would be the word fathered. Abraham fathered Isaac because it's emphasizing and speaking of the action of the male parent that brought about this child. And so Abraham fathered Isaac. And that's an important concept of of these people fathering children Until we get to Jesus, and then there's going to be a change, so hang on for that. But he fathered, or was the father of Isaac. Now, Abraham had other sons. He had an older son, Ishmael, and then after his wife, Sarah, died, uh, he had five sons through his second wife, after Sarah died, named Keturah. So he had a number of sons. But it's Isaac. Isaac was the promised one. Isaac is the one through whom the promise comes of the coming Messiah. So he is the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. How many brothers did Judah have? Eleven. There were twelve brothers, twelve tribes of Israel. Judah was not the oldest. Uh, Judah had two older brothers. And normally, the family blessing would go down through the oldest, but not here. And and you can go into Genesis and you can find out why. We won't get into that here. But God specifically chose Judah. And in the book of Genesis, near the end of the book, um, after, uh, after the brothers have come to Egypt and they've been reunited with with uh, their brother uh, uh, Joseph and so on, and their father is there. Their father lays his hand on each son and speaks a blessing to them. And when it came to Judah, their father Jacob put his hand on Judah and gave a very special blessing. It's in Genesis 49, 8-12. We won't turn there. But just to point out that in, in, in that section, it is very difficult to translate. And um, there is a section here that pertains here that I, w- I want to read, a, a literal translation. The scepter will not depart from Judah. What's a scepter? If you watched the coronation of King Charles, you saw that he had a scepter. 
It's a symbol of royal authority. And so Jacob prophesied that Judah would be the line from whom the kings would come. The scepter will not depart from Judah. There will never be another line of kings other than those that are from Judah. Scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Here's the part that's difficult to translate. Until he comes whose right it is. That's Messiah. Jacob, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave a prophecy, a blessing to Judah. Not only would Judah be the one through whom the kings would come, but it would be with Judah until the Messiah comes. And I'm jumping ahead of the story, but after Jesus... All the genealogical records were destroyed when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Since then, there is no Jew who can authoritatively say, I am the son of David. It's interesting. The prophecy, it will be in the family of Judah until the Messiah comes. And then it doesn't need to be there anymore because Messiah will reign Forever and ever. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves there. Uh, let's, let's continue. Uh, oh, by the way, so this prophecy tells us that Messiah is going to be descended from Abraham. He's going to be from the tribe of Judah, and he'll be the king. Look at verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, they are twins. Perez was the older. But look, he does something unique here. He puts their mother He says, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. That's highly unusual in a Jewish genealogy of that time to have women. Matthew will include four women, and they are very unique. You would think he would include the matriarchs of Israel. Still today, the Jewish people talk about their matriarchs. And you can go to their tombs in the land of Israel today, and they are very celebrated. There is Sarah. There is Rebekah. There is Rachel. There is Leah. The matriarchs. But they're not mentioned here. There are four women. Three of them are not even Jewish. They're Canaanites. And one of them is a prostitute, and one is, uh, well, they're... They're a mess, except for Ruth. Uh, Her problem is she is a Moabite. And uh, the Moabites, because of something that happened back in the time of the Exodus, God had said no Moabite will be allowed to come into the sanctuary of God. Ruth is excluded. And yet God includes her in the genealogy and includes her in writing. We'll see her in a moment. But here is Tamar. Now, Tamar uh, was um, a woman who um, was a a Gentile. She was guilty of incest with with, uh, Judah. And a few weeks ago, Dorian preached on a Sunday morning on that passage in Genesis. So you'll remember that story from several weeks ago. But these four women being included demonstrate God's grace and mercy. 
And I'm sure as Matthew was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, probably feels like shouting hallelujah. Because this is tremendous that these are demonstrating God's mercy and his grace. And so uh, Matthew also includes these who are not uh, Jewish as a reminder that Jesus came to save sinners. Jew and Gentile. And Matthew will give the commission at the end of his book in chapter 28 to take the gospel to every people, every nation, Jew and Gentile. Well, back in verse verse 3. So you have Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, verse 4, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Uh, He's interesting. We know a little about him in the Old Testament. He was part of the generation that Moses led from Egypt to Canaan. And he was the leader of the tribe of Judah at that time. He was the first because the the people of Israel were organized for their march through the wilderness. They were organized according to tribes. Judah was the first tribe. And who led the tribe of Judah in the march? It was this man, Nasha. When the tabernacle was erected and consecration, Nasha brought the first sacrifice uh, to the tabernacle. But he was among that generation that died in the wilderness because of unbelief. Then we come uh, in verse 4, And Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab, that's the second woman. Uh, She also is, or she is a Canaanite, and she was a prostitute in Jericho. But... She hid the spies. Remember, the, Josh, Joshua spent, sent spies into the Jericho to spy out the land and sing, send back a report. She hid the spies, and she told them, we have been following reports about you ever since the miracle when you crossed the Red Sea. And here's this heathen woman who has faith She's going to be listed in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. She was a woman who believed. And uh, then after this was all over, uh, she marries Salmon and enters into the line of the Messiah. And so Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. That's our third woman. As I said earlier, she was a Moabitess, and the Moabites were forbidden from coming into the tabernacle. She's an outsider, and yet God brings her into the family and into the genealogy of the most important Jew who ever lived, and it shows God's grace. And so here's Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of of David the king. Very significant. Now we come to number three, Jesus' genealogy, from David to the exile. And that's in the next part of verse 6 through verse 11. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. She is the fourth woman to to be mentioned. Now she's Jewish, 
But she's married to a Canaanite. She's married to, a, a, more specifically, a Hittite. The Canaanites were divided into the Jebusites, Hittites, Amalekites, and electric lights. No, not electric lights, but all the different ites. And it's interesting that her name is Bathsheba, but Matthew doesn't give her name. He just simply says uh, that her husband was Uriah. By using Uriah's name, he is emphasizing the awfulness of David's sin. Because you remember how this child Solomon was a son of David with Bathsheba. Now, they were married when Bathsheba was conceived, when, when Solomon was conceived, but earlier, Solomon committed adultery with Bathsheba. She was another man's wife. And you remember that she got pregnant. And you remember then that that baby died. Later, she and, and David marry. And they have a son whose name is Solomon. Well, then... In verse 7, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. He was a king who sought his own good, not the people's. And the kingdom wind up splitting between the north, the northern kingdom called Israel, southern kingdom called Judah. It happened during his reigns. Terrible thing. It continues in verse 7, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Now, he is a king who began well. But then it says in Scripture, he walked in the sins of his fathers. And then there is, uh, he's the father of, uh, of Asaph. Now, Asaph is also spelled Asa. Uh, it's the same person. You read about Asaph and Asa in Kings and Chronicles. Finally, they have a good king. And he destroyed the Canaanite worship shrines. He called on the Lord. He brought the nation back to God, and God delivered Israel. So an amazing story. You can read about it in Second Chronicles chapter 20. And then in verse 8, <clears throat> And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Now, he is a king who got into a situation that he shouldn't have gotten into. And he was attacked. And he called out to God, and God's grace saved him. And then from Jehoshaphat, he was the father of Joram. Sometimes that is spelled Jehoram, with a H between the E and the O. Uh, Jehoram, or uh, Joram. And uh, he was a wicked king. He married the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. As soon as you mention Ahab and Jezebel, you know, that was a terrible couple. Non-believers, non, uh, non non-Jews, they were Canaanites, and they were very, very wicked. He murdered his brothers to eliminate possible rivals to the throne. That's what kind of man he was. And yet, he's in the genealogy of the Messiah. The verse continues in verse 8, And Joram, the father of Uzziah. Now, Matthew skips three bad kings there. He skips Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. He skips them because he's trying to do something orderly here. Matthew likes to do things orderly. It's probably part of his training as a tax collector, keeping records. 
And he wants to have this very precisely, 14 generations each. We'll see why in a little bit. So apparently to keep the 14 generations, he eliminates uh, three generations to make this symmetrical. Now, when it says that Uzziah then, uh, in verse 9, was the father of Joseph, Jotham, the term father can refer not just to father, but grandfather, great-grandfather, and so on. And, and it does that here. So he was the father of Jotham. A good king, Jotham was a good king who followed in the ways of the Lord. It continues, and Jotham the follow, father of Ahaz. Ahaz sinned grievously against the Lord, including sacrificing one of his sons to a heathen god. You're talking about an abomination. But this man had a son, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a great king. He tore, and tore down the heathen altars. He restored the sacrifices and was a blessing to Israel. <clears throat> then we come to verse 10. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was Judah's most wicked king. Idolatry, worship stars, sacrifice children, on and on it goes. But we also read in scripture that he repented and uh, he removed the altars and reinstituted, and reinstituted temple worship. So praise God for that. Then in verse 10, Manasseh was the father of Amos. That's not the prophet Amos, whose book we have uh, in the Old Testament. This is in the line of David. It's also spelled Ammon, A-M-O-N, in some places. Oh, but look who his son is. Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, removed the idols. I am so proud to have a grandson named Josiah. It's a wonderful name, and uh, we pray that he lives up to that name, and I'm sure he will. Uh, while, re while restoring the temple, he rediscovered the book of the law that had been lost and kind of forgotten. And he resumed the Passover, all these great things. Later, he died in a battle against Egypt at Megiddo. That's the place mentioned in Revelation that we call Armageddon, a scene of some future things coming. And he died at Megiddo, and his oldest son reigned in his stead and was taken to Egypt and died. And that son is not in the line, because you read... Then in verse 11, and Josiah, father, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. Jeconiah has another spelling of his name too. It's Coniah, C-O-N-I-A-H. He was Josiah's second oldest son, and he ruled, and he was taken to Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians have risen as a world power and took him to, to, uh, to Babylon. And then you see that phrase, and his brothers. They are not mentioned by name, but there is Jehoahaz, who reigned and was taken to Egypt and died. There was Jehoiakim, 
who reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's Jehoiachin. It's easy to get Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin mixed up. But Jehoiachin reigned three months and ten days and did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then there was his son Zedekiah. Zedekiah reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he was taken to Babylon in the final deportation to Babylon. Remember in Israel's history that the nation of Babylon had risen up. It's a great enemy of Israel. And God used them to judge the Jewish people and to to destroy the temple in Jerusalem and to take um, many, many of of the prime uh, cream of the crop of Israel's future leaders, such as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, took them to Babylon. And then there is a later deportation, this one under Zedekiah, which is the last one. And then there is no more king in Israel. The, everything has fallen apart, but not in God's eyes. And there, there's more to the story of wonderful things God's going to do. But continuing with what it says here. After the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Well, Jeconiah, we saw him in verse 11, uh, in the line of David, went through him. But here's the problem. God had the prophet Jeremiah pronounce a curse on Jeconiah and his descendants. Because of the evilness that was coming from him, God said, no descendant of Jeconiah will be allowed to sit on the throne of David. So that's a problem. That's the royal line. The Messiah is supposed to come from that line, but Messiah hasn't come yet. And now there's a curse saying anyone from that line cannot become the king of Israel. So therefore, no son of Joseph that we're going to meet at the end the legal father of, of Jesus, no biological son of Joseph can be the king of Israel because of this curse. The solution is found in Luke's genealogy in the Gospel of Luke. We're not going to turn there, but just to refer to it. Luke gives the genealogy of Mary. And in, in it's a very Jewish genealogy following Jewish customs where no women are mentioned and no names are skipped. And that genealogy goes all the way back to Adam and no generation is skipped. But it still presents us with some problems. If you wished to trace a woman's line but couldn't use her name and yet it's the woman's line, how do you distinguish it? There was one easy way, and that is you use the name of her husband. And that's where we're coming to in a few verses. And 
This whole thing is going to fall into place. But that raises another question, by the way. Uh, How could the researchers tell by looking at the genealogy whether it was that of Mary or Joseph, since in either case Joseph's name is found? Well, when you study Luke's genealogy, you discover something very interesting. In the Greek of that genealogy, every name, Name of Abraham, name of Judah. Every name has the article the in front of it. The Abraham, the David, and so on. Except for Joseph, the husband of Mary. That was the clue to let people know this is the genealogy of Mary. Very interesting. Uh, do, well, let's, let's do look at one verse in there. Uh, Luke chapter 3 and verse 23. Luke 3, 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. He is not the biological son of Joseph. We'll talk about that. Joseph, the son of Heli. I thought in Matthew, Joseph is the son of Jacob. Is this a contradiction? No. This is Mary's genealogy. Heli is Joseph's father-in-law. Mary's father. But that's getting us straight. Let's, let's get back to Matthew. So, Mary is in Jesus' line, or David's line, through a different son, not Solomon, but a son named Nathan. Therefore, the royal blood of David is in Mary's biological son. But it's through Nathan, not through Jeconiah, who has the curse. And so when Jesus is conceived in Mary's womb without a human father, which we'll see next week, that child was the son of David without the curse. But how can he fit in and still get the blessing? Well, when Joseph, through David's line, the curse line of Jeconiah, married Mary and took the unborn child under his protective care, he became the, Jesus became the legal son of Joseph and thus became the uncursed son of David. The only possible person who can be the Messiah. It really is astounding. Well, we have to continue. Let's look at verse 12 where we are then Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. You've heard of Zerubbabel. He's mentioned in the Old Testament in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and so on. He was the Jewish man that the Persian king put in charge of, as, as governor of Jerusalem when the Jewish people came back from the exile. And he's the last person in this genealogy until we get to Joseph well, the last person in this genealogy period whose name is mentioned in the Old Testament. But let's continue. 
So you have Zerubbabel. Then verse 13. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. Abiad, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the son of the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And then verse 16. So all these people who are unknown to us, not unknown to God. He knew every one of them, but there's no record of them. They were just these unknown people. In the 400 years uh, between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. But verse 16, verse 16 is one of the most significant verses in Matthew's gospel. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary is a young woman. In, uh, in Nazareth, in the line of David's descendants. Uh, Jewish history tells us many of David's descendants wound up settling in Nazareth. There are a lot of them there. She's part of the family, but from Nathan. And we're going to find out next week in, in the verses that will continue uh, about her pregnancy. Joseph had nothing to do with it. It's a miracle from, from the Holy Spirit. But, but here's Joseph, the husband of Mary, because after the angel appears and explains to Mary and explains to Joseph, we'll see next week, Joseph, he's troubled. He doesn't know what to do when he learns that she's pregnant according to the law. She's a lawbreaker. And the, the penalty for the law was stoning or at least divorce. And he doesn't want to put her through that. And then we're going to see the angel appears to him and tells him what's going on and tells him to take Mary as his wife. And so he did that. They were engaged at the time. And the engagement in those days was considered, you were called wife and husband, even though you didn't live together, even though you had never had a physical relationship. You had that engagement for a year, and then you came together. They were in that period. But Joseph then obeys God, takes her as his wife. And after that, Jesus is born. So Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom? That is a feminine pronoun. Of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. If if we didn't have in Hebrew the distinctions between, uh, and in Greek also, between a male pronoun and a female. Some people would say, oh, well, this is, this is referring to Joseph. Joseph of whom Jesus was born. No, no, no. In Greek, it's the feminine. Of whom means Mary, not Joseph, was born, who is called the Christ, the Messiah. The anointed one. Lastly, in verse 17, we have the, the summary. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Why 14? It was a very Jewish thing. They liked, the rabbis liked to, to do things like that to help in memorizing 
And if you know, there's 14. But the Sadducees and the Pharisees both attached great significance to the number 14. It's not in scripture, but we have it from their writings. Names in those days had a numerical equivalent. Uh, You take, for David, the letter D. So in English, it's A, B, C. So it's the fourth letter. So you would have the letter or the number four. For the A, well, that's the first letter. So you have four, one, and so on. Well, David, the original name in Hebrew, and by the way, in Hebrew, you don't count the vowels. So you have the D, the V, and the D again. And in the numeric way it's done in Hebrew, you come up with 14. That was very important to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We don't know for sure if that's why Matthew did it, but it's the best explanation that I have heard. It could be. But he has given these genealogies. Well, every person in this genealogy, with the exception of Jesus, was a sinner. And they are a microcosm of us. And Jesus humbled himself in coming in this family. But not just this family, but to us who are sinners as well. God in his grace called these people to be ancestors of Jesus in the line of the Messiah. And Matthew's genealogy answered that question. Who is qualified to be the king of the Jews? And the answer is, Jesus. Now, Jesus was born, was born and lived and was the king of the Jews. Although, um, when Jews tried to make him a physical, political king with, a, with an army and politics and so on, he refused. And when Pilate asked him uh, if he was a king, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. In other words, it's not political, it's not military, it's different. Jesus did have a kingdom. And he went preaching and he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And every person who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ as their savior Paul says, is transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. Yes, he is a king, and he has a kingdom. And if you're a believer, if you've repented and trusted in Christ, you're in that kingdom. And then on top of that, scripture talks about a future kingdom over which he will reign, and he will be king of kings and lord of lords on this earth. But it's very important for us to realize he's king. What does that mean for our salvation? Well, it's his word that goes. And his word says, your righteousness is as filthy rags. There is no way you can come into God's kingdom. There's no way you can be a child of God because of your sin. There's no way humanly, but God provided a way through sending his son, the second person of the triune Godhead, 
born of a woman, but born without sin because of the virgin conception that we'll see next week. Born without sin. Lived 33 years without committing a single sin. And then he was put on the cross and paid the penalty for the sin of everyone that would repent and believe in him. And so, if you have not entered into God's kingdom, the message Matthew would have, he's going to tell us in the book that he get, we're sent out to give this message, to repent of your sin and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do that this morning and enter into his kingdom. And if he is your king, it will impact every area of your life. It's not just, oh good, my sins are gone, I'm fine, everything, I can do whatever I want. No, 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 he's your king now. He's your Lord. And so when we look at our life, at the decisions we make, we want to make those decisions that the king would have us make. What is the will of our king? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, don't trust in your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. In our relationships, he is the king. And so we want to have godly relationships. That are relationships that are pleasing to the king. In our work life, we want to live in our work life in a way that's pleasing to the king. In our family life, in our entertainment, we have a king. We submit to him. And we want to live in accordance with what our king would have us live. Changes your perspective to really realize that Jesus is king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Matthew's gospel. We thank you for the king. We thank you that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is qualified. And Father, I pray for anyone hearing here, that is here or hearing this later, who is not in your kingdom. Father, that they would do what your word commands us to do, to repent of our sin and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then, Lord, we would live our life acknowledging that you are King. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.